0: Welcome back to MISS Radio, everyone. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving break and listened to a lot of great podcasts and your time off. I know that I did. And I think you're about to listen to another good one. You're about to hear a conversation among three MISS students, Kat Stress from the IPD program, Jimmy Smith of NPTS, and Trusha Castellino, also from NPTS. They each come from a pretty unique perspective as far as their experiences and studies go. Jimmy is a veteran of the Marine Corps and, as I said, a nonproliferation and terrorism studies student. And he has a very nuanced view on gun control as a person who knows how to use a weapon and knows what it means to be educated about weapons. I think you'll really appreciate his perspective on the gun control debate here in the U.S. Similarly, I think you'll really appreciate Kat's perspective. She worked on the Brady campaign over the summer and learned a lot about the advocacy efforts for gun control here in the U.S. and I think the interplay between her and Jimmy is going to be one that really enriches our understanding of this issue. Complementing both of their perspectives is Trusha's. She studies the global arms trade and the dynamics, the things in common with gun control, I think you'll find surprising. The sort of contradictions in policy between what we do domestically in terms of controlling small arms and what we do internationally as far as just selling them to the highest bidder. Um, Some of it's infuriating, some of it is puzzling, all of it's compelling, and I think there's a lot to be learned from the intersectionality between what determines policy in terms of gun control and policy for the global arms trade. Without any further ado, Here's the conversation among Jimmy Smith, Trusha Castellino, and Kat Stress with yours truly, Gabe, um, as the facilitator. All right, enjoy. All right, we are here on Friday, November 9th with Jimmy Smith, Kat Stress, and Trusha Castellino. I'm going to have each of you introduce yourselves before we get into our discussion of gun control and the arms trade
1: first Jimmy who are you hi so I'm a student at miss I study nonproliferation uh, non-proliferation and terrorism studies I served in the Marine Corps for several years and uh, I am a California native from Northern California which it, my town might soon be burned up in the fires that mm. are going up near paradise and I hope that doesn't happen me too
2: cat Hey, I'm Kat. Uh, I study international policy and development here. This is my last semester. Um, And I guess relevant information for this is I did um, a summer with the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence uh, recently. Um, And while that was, you know, focused on partnerships, my, my sort of overall goal is monitoring and evaluation and getting into that. So I sort of did a bit of that while I was there as well. Cool.
3: Uh, hi, my name's Trusha Gastelino. Like Jimmy, I'm also a nonproliferation proliferation terrorism studies student um, in my third semester. Um, relevantly, this summer I was uh, supporting Jeff Abramson, who is the coordinator for the Forum on the Arm Street, mm-hmm. which is an experts network that works on arms trade and conventional arms issues. Um, and so, this was something that. Uh, I have become very passionate about. So, thank you for having us to speak about. This. Oh
0: man, it's our pleasure. I will look forward to hearing about that experience. Um, I think we're going to start with Kat's experience over the summer with the Brady campaign. Oh no. Uh, so, yeah, don't f- <laughs> Oh, I hope it's good. How did I- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I hope it was a good one. Yeah, just yeah. what did you do? How did the, how did the summer unfold?
2: Yeah, great. So, um as as with all things graduate school related, I felt that I needed an internship. <laughs> um, and while I was originally looking for something more explicitly in the, um, you know, D-mail world, I applied for the Partnerships Internship with the Brady Campaign because I thought it would be an... Interesting deviation from my prior experiences. Um, I had never really looked into, uh, you know, gun control or even the debates around it whatsoever. You mm. know, I'm from Minnesota, a big hunting state, so it was never something that we right. even talked. I was, you know, it was just like we didn't have guns in the house, but if somebody had a rifle lying around, I didn't question it. Um, and so I got there and started, you know, I, I really wanted to look at their programs and see what they were doing and, and what they were trying to accomplish and learn more about it. And it was a really, really, it was very insightful. The the environment there was very friendly and open and everyone was had a wealth of experience that they were willing to share. You know, a lot of lawyers, um, a lot of social activists, a lot of veterans and gun owners who came into Brady um, to, to work on these issues. So their new vice president is actually the first um, female helicopter pilot in, I think Iraq and Afghanistan, um, hmm. you know, um, and so she she is their new uh, vice president or vi- director of director of programs, um, and so there's a lot of really interesting people who I had great conversations with around, you know, what are we trying to accomplish here, and how do we do it better, um, and so their mandate is, you know. It's not it's not taking away guns, which I think a lot of people have a misconception about. It's, it's really about just lowering the amount of people who die by firearm, whether that be suicides or homicides or mass shootings, which are a, a very small percentage of the actual gun deaths that occur. Mm. Um, and just making sure that they're stored safely and that people know how to handle them properly and making sure that we incorporate everyone into the conversation not just people who are victims but also veterans who are very very strongly believe that they want to you know keep hold of their weapons and be able to go to a firing range and, and do that thing without people accusing them of you know perpetrating this horrible culture right. um so it's changing the conversation around that
0: so What are the Brady campaign's top sort of policy priorities, if you can list them concisely? Yeah,
2: so they have two main branches. They have a, like, very technically, they have a 501c3 and a 501c4. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they have a social norm change campaign, um, and they have a legal action project. So these are their sort of two main uh, sections. And the legal action project is, to put it bluntly, about suing people um you know they they take on cases um about uh negligent dealers um so for example online trade um and negligent um oh goodness i forget you know shops stores uh gun stores selling yeah yeah selling irresponsibly or people who traffic guns um you know how how do you Put in place new legislation that prevents that from happening in the future, and so part of their legal action project is, you know, bringing suits on behalf of victims who, for example, have family members who commit suicide or who go out and you know die in a mass shooting because someone illegally acquired a gun mm. or went to a dealer and acquired it without you know any sort of background check, um, that sort of thing. So their legal action project has actually generated some new legislation, and the. Brady background check. Important important background information here. Brady was founded by the former um, associate of Ronald Reagan, who was shot, and the and he was a staunch Republican who had you know nothing really vital to say about gun control before that. And afterwards, he founded Brady to um, institute universal background checks, which up until this day are still not instituted universally. So um, that's their legal action project. And their social social norm change project has a few different components, um, but primarily it's about transforming the conversation around guns, um, you know, taking away the stigma of necessarily like owning a gun, but also making sure that people store it safely and and taking out the stigma of asking people if they own guns. You know, so many people are afraid to go up and say, well, you know, do you have a gun in your house? um we don't do that like when your kids go over um for this is their asking saves saves kids campaign Mm. and part of it is you know parents are afraid to ask their neighbors when their kids go over for a play date like oh is there a gun in your house and part of it is changing the conversations around that to make sure that it's okay to ask that and so they have the social norm change component and the legal component
0: got it all right we'll get back to that um the Knowing those two aspects, I think, is crucial because those are the two kind of fields where these uh, perspectives are coming together and clashing yeah. sometimes. But I think hopefully through this conversation, we're going to find par- places in that conversation where we aren't necessarily in disagreement. If you're on, if you have differing perspectives, that doesn't mean you disagree. Yeah. So it's
2: all about, all about a compromise. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: Jimmy. Hi. I know you've got. Uh, A a very interesting and also uh, well-reasoned take on gun control. So when you hear Kat um, talking about this project, what what is your immediate reaction to, you know, the movement to reduce the number of
1: guns in people's hands? I think that... um a lot of what she says, I I typically agree with. I don't think it's she's saying to necessarily reduce the number of guns in people's hands per se, as opposed to um, maybe helping educate people so that they're more responsible when they okay. have those weapons. That's a good distinction, and I think yeah. that and that's something that um, I uh, have talked with people quite a bit. I think a lot of people that when they react very negatively toward um, gun control legislation stuff. There's two main reasons. One, they're afraid that it's like a kind of a very incremental process to eventually disarm everyone Mm -hmm. in the country. And so it's very slow, and they're afraid that the closer you get, the harder it is to do things, especially here in California where things are extremely strict compared to other places. And yet we still have problems, which is kind of unfortunate. The second thing is that a lot of times the laws that are put in place – are um, penalizing people who are not the problem, the people who are just going to the gun range, or the people who actually legitimately use it in actual self defense and they don't, you know, they are storing it safely, they are doing those things. And um, one of the un- kind of unfortunate things is that people who are going to have decided they're going to commit some sort of illegal act, they, the law is, once they've decided that, the law is not really going to hold them back per se. Now, you can restrict access. For example, I agree that background checks are a good thing and that they should be universally applied, mainly because how do you know somebody's a criminal unless you check their background when you sell them something, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody's murdered three people, you will say you murdered three people years ago and you come into my store. I don't know who you are. How would I know? You're just some random person who wants to buy something. Yeah. So that's, I think, the value of something like a background check. Um, I there's also been some problems with that. I have some personal friends, a um, veteran who has literally um, done no crimes at all, and uh, one time the Department of Veteran Affairs called him up, and they're asking questions about financial things, which is has nothing to do with gun control stuff. And so they're like, oh, well, who does your finances in the home? He's like, oh, my wife does. And he's like, oh, so you don't do your finances? And he's like, well, no, because my wife, is she has a degree in accounting, and she generally does it better than I do. So they're like, oh, okay. So what happened is that he was put on a list as uh, mentally defective or something like that because he, quote, could not handle his own finances and he's still on an FBI list for not being allowed to own weapons. And this is something that is- outrageous. It's it's crazy. This is something you can look up. There's a couple senators who are trying to push against this, but it's something that is like some policy that the VA just adds certain people onto this list, and then those people are blocked from buying weapons. And it and to me, there it, he has no other, you know, violation or anything, no violent actions or no domestic abuse, none of that stuff. And so it's kind of, you know, kind of uh, deceptive, kind of like you know, really unfortunate that, you know, some somehow that these have been put into place. And it's really, that's kind of kind of unfortunate. Um, on a different, completely different topic, mm-hmm. so that's something I want to say that a lot of people don't realize is that some people, you know, you don't have to be a criminal per se. Sometimes people get put on a list, and it's the justification for putting them on the list may not be actually right. correct justification.
2: Yeah. yeah, and if I could add enforcement, too, of, of exactly what you were talking about mm-hmm. is is very spotty.
1: And, and so uh, another idea, though, and I um, I used to, at Chico State when I was there, I was a consultant and this thing they do once per semester called town hall. And it's where all of the, you know, freshman, gov- you know, basic government class, they all come together in this big event for several hours, and they all have to research a policy thing that they do. One of the topics you can do is Second Amendment slash gun control is one of the topics. So I got chosen to do one of those and our, in my town, our assistant city manager, who is also a police officer in a different city, was also one of the experts in the same room I was. So we started talking and stuff. And it was actually really neat because I was expecting a lot of, like, we need to get rid of guns talk. But there wasn't a lot of that, which was, I, I appreciate. It. it was a lot more about, about education and influenced by some of those conversations. After the event, as I was walking with the assistant city manager back to uh, the city hall um, we, he kind of, mostly him, kind of came up with this idea that wouldn't it be neat if there was some sort of like training or like a classroom thing, for example, that it would be a pretty long one, maybe like six months every Tuesday, Thursday night for a few hours, maybe every other weekend. And what it teaches you is several things. Most important is how big of a responsibility it is if you choose to own a firearm hmm. and that how much you need to really pay attention to what is going on with that. you know. And then you also educate people explicitly on what does the law currently, what does that actually mean? If you're armed and you're, there's a police officer, how should you interact with them? If you are armed and somebody's attacking somebody, should you intercede? Or should you not intercede? What what are the pros and cons of each of those decisions, and what are the possible liability options there? That you you do go to the range and you learn how to fire the weapon, take it apart, put it together, clean it properly, all those different things. How to store it, you know, if there's kids in the home, how you need to maybe take some extra uh, steps to make sure that they don't get in the hands of others. If you have some young people, maybe teenagers, and they want to try it out, you can how to sort of some good habits to help them to learn properly how to do it and under your supervision so that you know, you're know you in a range or something so that people are being responsible. And I think that when we look at like decades past in the 1960s, 1970s, I wasn't alive during those times, but it seemed like there was a lot less problems. And there was even stories where people brought their rifles to school because they went hunting after school, after their do done school, they all went hunting. That was the fun thing they all did back in the day. And I don't advocate for people bringing the guns to school, so let's be clear on that. <laughs> That's good. But, but um, I think that the idea was that the parents, many of them who were veterans of either the, the World War II or of Korea or maybe Vietnam, mm-hmm. spent time with their sons and many times with their daughters as well to show them and really help them to understand that responsibility and to show them how to do things, how to fire it properly, how to put it away, that you ha- it was a whole process. And when I was in the military, I had very, I had some but very little experience with firearms before I went in the military, and in the military I learned a lot of that stuff. Right. And I think that a lot, a lot of times when we were talking about veterans, they have a memory of using weapons and they're not scary. The weapons to many people are, themselves are not scary. It's the person who has the weapon and what they may or may not do. That's what people should be afraid of. And if we educate people on what we expect, and this goes back to um, the conversation that we were just having a second ago about changing the dialogue, changing the sort of social understanding of things. Mm-hmm. That this should, you know, and I don't think it should be required to buy a weapon. People think that oh, this should be a required course because that just disenfranchises a lot of other people. But it should be encouraged. And um, and when I was talking with that assistant city manager, and this is at the time when California passed a lot of very restrictive laws and stuff, that um, he said that there was there would be a lot of laws he'd be okay with. Like if you want to own an AR fifteen and you went through this class, he'd be fine with it. Because you have shown, you know, if you want to have 30 round magazines, he'd be fine with it because you've shown yourself that you are going to be as responsible as possible. And you have taken the effort to educate yourself in a proper way. And um, and I think that that would be something that might be great, not just for California, but you can replicate this appropriately in all all areas of the United States and possibly other countries as well. Well, all right, we will come back to this part of the discussion
0: soon, but I want to zoom out a little bit. And from the sort of individual level of owning, you know, firearms to the sort of national, international level of owning much larger weapons. Uh, Trusha, what is your what is your take? What's your background on this research?
3: Sure. And as a disclaimer, I do want to say that I'm from India. So my cultural understanding of this is also a little bit different. Um, I don't come from a nation where... It's very common for people to own firearms and it's not my place, again, whatever opinions I might have about gun control in the US, it's not my place to say, I think, what domestic policy for gun control should be like because that's a choice that a nation makes, right? And that's a choice your country is making. But my understanding of the Second Amendment is still that it was intended to protect the right of citizens to bear arms. It doesn't, however, and shouldn't, I think, protect the right of arms manufacturers making money. Mm. It's not in place to protect the financial interests of arms manufacturers, and unfortunately, I feel like that's what happens at the international level. Um, like Kat said, right, people, parents are often scared to ask their kids' friends whether they have guns in their homes, but for a gun in the United States, its first home is the U.S., right? And I feel like if we're in a place right now where gun control issues and gun violence in the country um, is is an issue that is polarizing um, and that people do feel strongly about, in that kind of a scenario, I feel like it's in my opinion, extremely negligent to kind of export that confusion or that lack of clarity and that lack of control overseas. Because that's like exporting a very unique American brand of gun violence um, down your southern border into into Mexico and then also further away in places like Yemen. Um, Are
0: are you saying that the policies around gun sales and gun possession in the U.S. are, in a sense, kind of affecting our neighbors, you know, as far as Mexico and Canada in terms of the distribution of firearms?
3: I think they do. And I think. So for Mexico specifically, um, to speak to that. uh, So guns. When firearms go over borders, um, it happens in two ways, right? Uh, it's either a legal sale. Um,
0: a legal sale or an Ill- illegal sale. A legal sale. okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's illicit trafficking. Mm-hmm. So firearms that are going to Mexico are being bought at gun stores legally in the United States and then being trafficked. Um, Or they're going to the Mexican armed forces through initiatives like um, the Merida Initiative, which started in 2008 and 2009 as part of the war on drugs. Um, And I think for any country, when they're exporting firearms, uh, a lot of times... It is economically motivated, and I think for this administration right now, um, based on new policies that have come into place, a lot of it is economically motivated. What are Um, some of
0: those policies, new policies?
3: So recently, as of 2018, there has been a push to move um, uh, firearms, specifically uh, semi-autonomous weapons, um, firearms from the... uh, State Department, so the from can we backtrack a
2: little bit? Yeah, don't worry. We're gonna make an
3: edit here and right. So for the United States um and its gun export policy, recently they've made a change um to move specific kinds of firearms from uh, the State Department to the Commerce Department.
0: In terms of jurisdiction.
3: Yes, and so what that means is that um, the kind of checks that these sales go through um, are a lot lower than when they were under the State Department. And in 2002, there was a congressional action that made it so that um, anytime there was a sale one million dollars and higher, uh, it had Congress had to be notified, right? But if you move semi-autonomous firearms off onto the commerce list, um, that doesn't happen anymore.
0: When you say semi-autonomous, is that similar to semi-automatic or is this a different uh, terminology?
3: Sorry, I mean, I should have said semi-automatic. Okay, that's fine. I yeah. just wanted to clarify. Yeah, yeah um, and so what that means is that they're making a distinction between military and non-military weapons, which doesn't really exist because semi-automatic weapons have multiple uses Mm -hmm. um, and can be used by military. Um, And so the US policy recently has heavily favored um, sales for arms manufacturers as opposed to the kinds of human rights violations uh, mm. that might be committed by actors who use these firearms and that could be a state actor Say, or a non-state actor Saudi
0: Arabia or you know i guess it could be the Mexican army but in this right.
3: case right and
0: high profile client these days is Saudi Arabia
3: yeah and it's state actors who might be working with organized crime mm. or taking advantage or, of the kind of instability that criminal activity creates yeah
1: using weapons to commit all sorts of atrocities and such which is quite sad you know and of course Yemen
0: is a very high well not high profile enough example but that is a great example of what happens when we essentially turn a blind eye Syria Syria
3: yeah
0: well so Trusha when you when we were walking up here you mentioned something about reframing the conversation a little bit instead of calling it arms control It's referring to it as a study of the arms trade or but when you remove the word control, it kind of takes you to a different sort of conceptualization of the issue as the arms trade is going to continue. Uh, You can't really control it in a way that's satisfying to anybody. So how, how does that look from your sort of professional perspective that you're trying to take here? miss like what does that mean in terms of the policy approach what's the difference in that sort of semantic change
3: I think it's important to recognize it as an arms trade issue um, when you're dealing with conventional arms because these are things that are legal and they're very socially acceptable I feel like now, um, and it's built into the system, right? The global flow of arms is massive. Um, And a lot of countries' economies um, benefit very heavily.
0: Including ours.
3: Right, and the United States is the largest arms exporter in the world. Um, I also should say India is the largest arms importer. But, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, so it's, it's quite built in to the system. I also say that we should recognize um it as an arms trade issue because I don't feel like there's anyone out there who is ever for things like nuclear weapons right no one's ever going to be like oh I have all <laughs> of these nukes and I can't wait to use them right so the use part of that equation is isn't celebrated whereas Across countries now, we have um, arms expos, and it's it's something that's very, it's, it's a marker of how well your country is doing in the security department, really? right? And small arms are what kill people on a daily basis. So they're a very silent, like socially acceptable part of the equation, and personally I feel like in a lot of ways they're the real weapons of mass destruction because they're Hmm. killing a lot of people every single day.
0: Wow, Uh, that that kind of, that difference in the way sort of weapons of mass destruction as you would call them, you know, bombs, missiles, you know, biotoxic things like that, I don't know, biological weapons, they aren't things that are, people vaunt as sort of, you know, an item of pride. Like you were saying, whereas in the United States, owning a gun is is a really sort of element of pride or something purely related to self-defense. But what I want to know is like when you keep those things in mind in terms of a policy approach, the human element of it, knowing that one is something just built like arms control, arms trade internationally is built around sort of security, Mm -hmm. whereas in the States, owning a gun is I guess it was originally intended to create an element of security against invaders, against a, a against, ma- the government. against a malevolent yeah. government. Yeah. So from a psychological point of view, what, what are the current approaches to sort of, I guess we'll go back to you, Kat. Do you think that there is a compatibility with the American kind of psyche that has developed since 1776? in terms of limiting gun sales to people that won't use them responsibly? Is it compatible?
2: Yeah, um, so it's a little bit of a complicated question, as is everything, Um, but this is where I think the social and behavior change aspect becomes very, very important Um, because for example, one of the things that is, is, has been used to formulate some of Brady's campaigns is like the, the tobacco and the seatbelt campaigns from a few decades ago. You know, people, when they got cars, there were no seatbelts. Nobody wanted a seatbelt. Um, tobacco took a really long time to, to, to show people that that was negative for mm-hmm. your health. Um, and they were massive campaigns to change people's minds. It, it, it doesn't necessarily have to start with policy. Um, especially when you have a lot of people whose identities is really around, sur- is, um, is surrounded by this idea of freedom. You know, I have the freedom to purchase what I want, the market is there. And so there's uh, the social behavior change aspect is really important because it, it changes the consumer's perception of what is acceptable to purchase, and it changes the dealer's perception of their responsibility to their community. So when you have gun dealers and gun shops who don't care about who they're selling to or what they're selling or what effect that's going to have in their communities, then you have people who are absolutely willing to um, sell, like make straw purchases. So these are ones that are illegal sales. Um, exactly like Trisha was saying, you know, it's it's not just U.S. to Mexico or U.S. to other countries; it's state to state. Um, what,
0: what is a straw purchase in this case?
2: Yeah, so it's where the a the, uh, gun dealer will sell to someone who um, they know intends to probably traffic it across the borders. Knowingly. Either knowingly or they just don't look or into it. Yeah, It's eye. it's negligence yeah. or willful ignorance.
0: So that sounds like a very similar dynamic yeah, to is. their global arms trade. Jimmy?
1: I, I think also a straw trade. And also refer to somebody who's buying a weapon for somebody who otherwise could not. Yeah, acquire that, a that's okay. also that's like also it. felon or something, or like, like
2: that. a mentally someone mm. who's had, for example, a domestic abuse, um, uh, like a felony, like a charge, and they are no they're barred from purchasing a weapon, yeah. and so somebody else will buy it for them.
0: So I mean, on a global scale, if you in, you substitute, you know, the individual with a nation, a nation that's been. You know, observed to be domestically abusive, as in abusive of its own people with those arms. Mm-hmm. Is there an observable difference in the way, say, the United States sells to nations like that and the way it sells to nations with, you know, maybe a lesser history of war crimes or?
3: It
2: always you know, comes back to the money. Yeah. Who's making a profit?
0: Is that really just.
3: Because uh, otherwise, of it? I feel like you would see a little bit more pushback with Saudi Arabia right now. Right. You and we don't money. really see that. Yeah. And <coughs> and to be fair, a lot of what um, Donald Trump has said about um, arms sales to Saudi Arabia or pending arms sales, the whole one billion okay. thing that gets thrown around a lot. That number isn't necessarily even accurate. Yeah. Um, but the problem is when you're working with information that's not true, you're not even making a correct cost-benefit analysis, right? Mm -hmm. So if as a nation you decide that selling XYZ arms is going to get you so much money, and that's potentially in that scenario in the benefit of your people, and you make that decision, that's a sound cost-benefit analysis. Whether that makes you morally abhorrent is yeah, other is a, other is a yeah, difference. Benefit, what
2: yeah. dealers do too—they just make a cost-benefit analysis. If I can make a straw purchase and make such and such money, then why mm. bother with all the trouble of a background check?
3: Yeah. yeah, and it depends on who's calling the shots, unfortunately. So mm-hmm.
1: I, I think also that a lot of times people see different states, like Saudi Arabia, for example, or any other country, it's differently than they'll see an individual. Because uh, the state's made up of several indiv- you know, types of individuals. Not all of them are going to be irresponsible. Even in Saudi Arabia, there's going to be many of them. Are, it's not like the whole country itself is made up of people who are wanting to go and abuse the use of weapons or whatever. But clearly, there are some who um, those weapons who make it down into, say, Yemen and other places. And we have to remember the geopolitical situation in the area mm-hmm. in terms of you know, the Iran competing with Saudi Arabia in Yemen and in other places, too, that that, I think, has a big... The U.S. is um, uh, ally with Saudi Arabia because a lot of times the U.S. does not get along with Iran. A and lot so of times. It's like a, so yeah. the Saudi Arabia is kind of like our counter to Iran getting a lot more influence in the area. The enemy of my enemy. It's sort of like that, yeah. That's so I think that's the in, That's yeah. part of the situation where you have the arms controls, yeah, you're gonna sell arms to people who are reprehensible, and they're gonna use them for probably some very horrible things. Because you, they are against another country that you mm. either think is worse, or that you just don't like them, and you're trying to oppose them. Yeah, and yeah, so that's my comments for now. Yeah, and I'll mm-hmm. you guys can come back to me in a second. Of I have course, other comments yeah. Sorry, just to
3: jump yeah. in quickly though, and I mean, I think there is an understanding that you can't eliminate risk, right? You can mm-hmm. always just manage it. But the problem, I think, with what's happening right now is that there isn't a lot of transparency. Mm. And so one of the first things probably would be to at least have more places in the process where um, policymakers can interact with think tanks and researchers in the community that um, work with people on the ground. And I feel like that might be a little bit more helpful because a lot of these uh, sales are in good faith, right? You don't know what the external actor is going to use those things for. You also don't know what the levels of corruption are like. And so even if it's not necessarily the party you're selling to, the structures that are in place in those countries are not like the structures in your country.
1: So. I also think, though, that even when you have think tanks and stuff providing information, it doesn't mean that the politicians will decide to withdraw that support. They mm-hmm. may still realize, they may know exactly what those weapons are going to go for or mm-hmm. have a pretty good suspicion that they're going to make their way into Syria or into Yemen and still want to go ahead with it because of those other concerns. Because, I mean, if you give weapons to Saudi Arabia, I'm pretty sure that some of those are going to at least going to make it down to uh, Yemen, for example, because mm-hmm. they're involved in that war and they want to win it.
0: Right. Well, it sounds like it comes down to the values held by the people making these decisions. And if the prioritized value is financial benefit to you know your country or
1: your company, then well, the decision is going to be an easy one to make. Or influence in the region. You don't want sure. to lose influence in a region. You have a lot of um, mm-hmm. say kind of what goes on. So you That's what that.
2: politicians do domestically they have a huge some have a huge uh, supporter base of people who own guns and they get they they want to maintain that right mm-hmm. and so they see the efforts to control these things as infringements upon you know their constituent bases freedoms um, and so you'll have politicians pushing back against any kind of gun legislation because it it will it'll be a detri- supposed detriment to their constituent base
0: with
1: oh. Oh, I was going to say, we just, yeah, that is, that is true. We just, I always want to make sure that whatever the legislation going through that is actually, you know, f- trying to f- solve the problem and not oh, yeah. just be restrictive for being restrictive. Mm-hmm. That's a huge Because in California, point. a lot of the laws have been restrictive almost just to be restrictive. Oh, we're going to stop criminals from getting weapons by but, doing this. And it, it but just the enforcement upsets all the legally, yeah. you know, the people who are not the problem. Yeah. And so, and, and then, you know, the people who are the problem. Aren't following those little laws anyway. They mm-hmm. go to Nevada by their, like, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's, a, you know, well, yeah, what, yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting yeah, specifically, stuff. Specifically, because I have some points on here too, yeah. also. That, well, California
2: yeah. has, um, is number one in terms of strictness of gun legislation. That's very um, true. And <laughs> it also has the, the least, however, comparably, it has the least amount of gun deaths of any state in That's the entire nation.
0: Interesting correlation. Yeah.
2: Um, and and just ju- but just as a just um to qualify that um Oakland has some of the highest numbers of gun deaths in the nation including in Cal- within California it's got the highest number of gun deaths within California and that actually speaks to Jimmy's point about trafficking from Nevada Nevada is a huge exporter they have much less stringent gun laws and they're trafficked across into Oakland which as we know is a more impoverished area yeah. And um, a lot of people there are cut off um, from external support and a lot of them just get guns and continue to do crime. And there's, there's a correlation there between poverty too. Um, the,
0: I mean, that I think is a really important correlation. Uh, yeah. Because that kind of separates the discussion from just the control aspect, yeah. the control of sales and possession mm-hmm. to what are the socioeconomic roots of communities where gun violence is prevalent? Right. And I think education too.
2: Yeah, well and that's where the, yeah. well, like you were talking about the policies being restrictive just, just for restriction's sake, this is kind of what I was very interested in when I was at Brady because when you, when you do, for example, evaluations of these programs, you wanna get at the heart of the issue, you know, is this actually making an impact, not just in the way that it was originally Intended to, but in a way that that legitimately makes a difference to the people who need to have a difference made. Um, and you're right, uh, Jimmy. Sometimes these these bills or laws that um, people want to pass are not necessarily addressing the real problem, which, in a lot of cases, has to do with yeah socioeconomic factors. Depression, suicides are by mm-hmm. by far the uh, the larger number of gun deaths like by far in every single state um, most importantly a lot of them are veterans a lot of them are mm. young young white men a lot of them are older white men and understanding sort of the differences between that dynamic and the dynamic in Oakland which is impoverished majority african-american population um, you know, there's really low educational attainment in that area. There's few job opportunities. It's a food desert. There, All of these things, if you address only one aspect of it, which is we just need to get guns out of here, you're not really mm-hmm. fixing any of the things that led to the importation of guns in the first place.
1: That is a really
0: important point. I,
1: I think that, that there's a lot of merit to it what that is because again i think a lot of times education is really important mm-hmm. and also mental health in this case um, our access to people getting to deal with whatever depression and stuff is also a very important thing in terms of uh, trying to reduce suicides and stuff and yeah veterans are one of the most if maybe possibly the most highest dem- you know demographic for suicides um, I have a couple of points that we kind of touched on in other conversations. Would that be okay if I bring them up? Yeah, please. Go for it. Okay, me. cool. So um, one point is, uh, you know, we're talking about nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction Is uh, you know, nobody's really proud of them. I kind of disagree. I think that for nations at least, it's a, it's a place of power, prestige, um, and pride that yeah, are a lot of these, I, I, lot, the countries that have them, the countries that don't have them, they want to get rid of them, obviously. But I think the countries that that have them, they want to keep them.
3: Right, right. Yeah. And that's not what I was saying at all. Because mm. also, as you mean coming people. from <laughs> a nuclear weapon state, yeah. um, I, I get what you're saying about the pride associated with nuclear weapons. I meant there's no desire to actually use them let's or home. like yeah. open there's no <laughs> yeah, yeah, let us hope yeah, another no, important like, open ghosting about how you can't wait to test out oh. well, yeah. i don't know our current
2: current administration was pretty proud about the red button yeah. the big nukes so. right yeah <laughs> so
3: nobody wants really wants the aftermath i like to think whereas that's not necessarily true of guns is what yeah, i meant. yeah, yeah. yeah. I,
1: I think really only people wholly uneducated about what nuclear weapons and chemical weapons, biological weapons do, are the ones that oh, we should nuke them. I mean, it, it, it is such right. a ridiculous yeah. thing.
2: It's yeah. a negligent idea. Yeah.
1: Another point where you talked about Second Amendment, and I think mm-hmm. you're right, that it was not put in place f- to benefit com- you know companies to make large profits. That's so important. But I recognize. do want to make sure that it never becomes a situation where, okay, we're going to crack down so hard on companies selling weapons that nobody can get them. You see what I mean, like domestically at least. Yeah,
2: that's the that's the so freedom that to purchase.
1: Correct, yeah. and, and so that people can still bear arms. But you're right. I mean, I don't think that is intended for companies to become rich off of this. Um, and then one another point also is we as I believe that people are innocent until proven guilty. I'm sure everyone mm-hmm. here does. So it is kind of a hard position, but it's unfair. I think sometimes to punish or overly restrict people before they've committed something a wrongdoing of some sort of violation of the law and um now if you know that there's something coming up by all means go stop it you know and all that kind of stuff but again this gets back to the restrictive gun laws that are kind of just there to be restrictive (laughs) instead of like um like you said like trying to address the actual causes of why people are trying to get weapons in the first place whether that's poverty whether that's maybe lack of education, whether that's uh, depression, whether that's whatever it is. And I have uh, two questions for uh, you both as well as our host. Uh, first question is, have you ever fired a weapon before?
2: No.
3: Aced a rifle shoot as yes. a Have you shot student. a rifle?
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've shot.
1: A rifle, a shotgun, and a
0: couple different pistols. Yeah,
1: I, I I encourage you guys to give it a maybe. Go to a rifle range with somebody who's knowledgeable and trustworthy, and have them show you how to do it. And second, um, can you do you all understand that a lot of I've talked to a lot of people about gun rights, and they're like, "We should get rid of automatic weapons." And mm-hmm. it's clear to me that they don't understand that there's a difference between semi-automatic and fully automatic. Oh yeah do we do we all know what the difference is? Probably not as well
0: as you can explain. <laughs> yeah, that. You, you probably
2: know <laughs> remember, it a lot better. I, I remember you telling
0: me about this, and it was a distinction I had it's, not it's heard before. It's about
2: the number of rounds you can fire? Or? Correct. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So what's the difference? I, I don't know, actually, okay. specifically. This Help is an important Jimmy. question, because yeah. a lot
1: of times the conversations around gun control are people like, we should get rid of automatic oh, weapons. No, there's definitely a misconception yeah. about right. about so,
2: what different guns can do. Yeah. yeah. So
1: fully automatic weapon for everyone's understanding, is when you pull the trigger and hold it down, bullets just keep flying out, like a machine gun. That's fully automatic. Semi-automatic means you pull the trigger, you hold it down, one bullet only flies out. You have to let go of the trigger and then pull the trigger again for a second bullet to come out. There are, like in military M16s, which are very similar to AR-15s, there is an option for a three-round burst, means you pull the trigger once and three rounds go out. And the old vietnam ones had a fully automatic but they realized they just ran out of ammunition very quickly but um to i mean there is very is very difficult and i think you have to get a federal license and there's a lot of steps to get fully automatic weapons to own them legally and it is it is you know very difficult to acquire those and so again when people say oh we eliminate automatic weapons i think either a lot of people are you know, ignorant and not, I'm not saying they're dumb, but they're ignorant and they don't understand the difference uh, between those two weapons. And they think they want to get rid of fully automatic weapons, but they're not being clear in that communication. Or some people use it as a, as a way to try to advance if they're trying to get rid of, if their personal goals get rid of all guns, they, I think sometimes intentionally muddy up that conversation by not specifying the difference there. And so I think that that's something that Everyone should be kind of aware that there is a difference, and that's an important question actually.
3: Sure. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding also is that it is possible and fairly easy to convert a semi automatic weapon to an automatic Isn't weapon. Is that what a bump stock does? So, yes. So there's, there's and a there couple, have been like it, it a lot of efforts to work with. There's,
1: it depends on the weapon. Um, the mm. most common ones that people uh, know what to do with those is to take an AR 15. And um, bump stocks can work. There's also um, alterations you can do to the firing pin that mm-hmm. can try to get that kind of thing going. But, again, um, if we, say, reduce the likelihood of, of those things. And, again, I, I think it's not a bump stock. Okay. I mean, that's it seems like that's a, a reactionary kind of thing because there was a killer who used a, bu- a bump stock, right? Mm-hmm. But do we take a look at that and actually say, is that really a problem or is the problem more that this person had criminal intention or that they had serious mental health problems or that they had mm. some other, uh, is there another problem? Is the bump stocking uh, kind of like a red, a, herring, a red herring? A A red herring or a symptom? to try to distract from the conversation, make us all feel good we're getting rid of bump stocks mm. versus actually trying to address what the root
3: causes are. Right. And I'm yeah. I'm just curious because I'm thinking about it from the export angle. And mm-hmm. the United States government can work on improving conditions domestically, but it can't control what poverty mm. looks like or can, what mental health looks yeah. like outside, right? So it to can have can encourage
1: countries to do that. Yeah. Well, that's
2: where that <laughs> that's it that's continues <laughs> to solve yeah. that's yeah. where that intersection of, of policy and culture yeah. cultural transformation sort of really becomes important when you when you think about at least in terms of enforcement um, you know the ATF uh, they they do uh, these checks every year for dealing with. Uh oh gosh I'm going to butcher this. Is the tra- to a tra- uh, firearm tobacco and firearms? Oh, alcohol. Yeah, firearms. alcohol tobacco and firearms. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I like should they, they, I should know man- that they very well. Those, for um the listeners Yeah, but um they they do checks every single year for for gun dealers um just to make sure, you know, um th- they collect all of the illegally uh found weapons. So weapons that were found at the scene of a crime that they realize were sold illegally. Right. Um, through And they do this through tracing. Um, so they can do like ballistics tracing and everything like that. Um, and so they they go and they cross-check with all of the gun dealers. And a lot of times it's the same, you know, one or two that continuously sell these weapons that are being used. Uh, for example, AR-15s. Um, and enforcement in actually shutting down these places or finding them is really spotty Um, and so that's important but there is one thing that I wanted to to speak to that I think is important Um, you mentioned Jimmy uh, if if someone thinks that someone is going to commit a crime with a gun Mm -hmm. there actually is a law in place for that it's called a red flag law or an ERPO it's a extreme risk protection order and that's not in place in every single state and this is where you know you get into the conversation of do we federally mandate something just like is there a global ban on something do we federally man uh, mandate something or do we leave it up to the individual states and I think the tension here comes from those illegal traffic things over borders from states or countries that have you know a uh, limited supervision over weapons uh, to states or countries mm-hmm. that have increased supervision. Um take take Chicago for example. Um a lot of I'm going to say people who really really um support the second amendment take Chicago as sort of their prime example mm-hmm. because Illinois has um really strict gun laws but Chicago is you know drowning in gun violence. Um a lot of that's because of illegal trafficking. And that and again that's that's one of those things where it's like you you do have to address the heart of the problem how are how are we getting how are we interrupting this process of illegal trafficking um how are we like sort of creating um an even field of laws um across states you know maybe because some states in the south they really are very very proud of of having guns and owning you know guns and things like that and it's it's legal it's fine um but but then you get to the point where you know some other state doesn't want those things from happening um so what's what's the yeah. overlap there how do you address both of those cultures that are very clearly different cultures and relationships um with guns and how do you make sure that you're you're creating an environment that's beneficial to all people um But I think the, going back to the ERPO, sorry I lost my train of thought there going, (laughs) like just talking my mouth off. Um, But going back to the ERPO is yeah, in some states your family members can go to the police and say I think my husband or my daughter or anyone, I think they're going to commit a crime and then they put a a several day ban on purchasing a weapon.
1: Now, um, with that same law, would that also be, like, let's say they already own weapons? Would they come and right, confiscate them temporarily? Yeah, what's, what's it the depends.
2: It there? it depends, again. So this is where do we federally mandate something? Because right now each state has different um, interpretations of this law and in, in different interpretations of what it means and what it looks like in some states. You you can't go to the police directly. Um, in some states, you can only go to the police. Um, and in some places, you know, they will just ban you. In some places, they will come and take your guns that you already own, um, which, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about that because obviously if your family member feels that you're going to harm yourself or others, they don't want weapons in the house, but there's also you know an investigation how do you how do you prove that someone's actually mm-hmm. going to do this when they haven't done it yet
1: and and my my also concern about that is what happens if i will say i just don't want i don't like so-and-so or i don't want anyone to have weapons so i just put calls in saying mm-hmm. oh i think yeah i think Trusha's going to go and commit some crime with a weapon you better put a ban on her just to put a ban on on yeah. just to stop from and these weapons. are the
2: conversations where it comes down yeah, to the state it, level. Falsely. Yeah,
1: um, a couple of comments we we mentioned assault weapons, and I want to. Uh, this is another point that I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding in California. I'm not sure about other states, but they largely define an assault weapon, um, and I'm going to put this as is my summary as a scary looking gun, which really? doesn't. Yes, yeah. I, so no, this, this well, not. This is not. This is official. this is <laughs> the not official. the official. <laughs> okay. what, they, what they do is they say, for example, if the weapon has a handle. If it has two or three of the following things, like a handle, any sort of, like, scope that's not the base of iron sights, if it has, like, a, you know, it has certain things that, you know, then it's then it's an assault weapon. It has nothing to do with the size of the bullet, how fast the bullet goes. The uh, functionality. The functionality of the, of the weapon uh, whatsoever. And so that's what I say is, oh, it looks scary if it's, like, it's like painted black or something. And there's a couple of these. You know, we can look up specifically, but there's a couple of these that if it a flash suppressor which actually is a it makes it more safe because what you know instead of the the powder from the weapon kind of coming out the front of the the weapon it actually stops that so it helps it helps disperse that so actually that is a safer thing and it reduces the velocity of the bullet by a certain and, and it well. does that a little bit too yeah. and so there's a lot of this um i think that's it's really interesting if you look at i i don't know about any other state but that's kind of the best way I could sum it up. And so people see a weapon that looks scary and then they're afraid of it rather Mm, than whatever the functionality is. And then also, um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Yeah, I think I forgot to write it down. So
2: just going back to education on that point, you're right. Like making sure that people understand what all these things are, you know?
1: And then in California, again, there's a lot of neat jerk reactions about things. And um, and so people pass these ballot initiatives and stuff. And so it's like if you go from your home to a firing range, you're fine. But if you go like too far off of that path, you could be in trouble because you're not supposed to take your weapon like certain places or whatever, unless oh, yeah. you're intending to go there. There's there's all sorts of all sorts of interesting uh, laws in the books that some again I think they're just more being more restrictive than they are actually addressing a actual problem. Yeah, the
0: U.S. seems to have a problem with being reactionary yeah, on, on a lot of different policy levels but
1: oh I've, i remember my other point Yes, yeah, about chicago um so there's this um media person i haven't seen him recently but a guy named john stossel and he was a, he was an anti-gun person for a long time and then he um had like an experience that you could watch uh, like in youtube you could watch mm. a lot of his stuff but he actually goes around and he shows um a lot of times, people owning weapons or doing like banning weapons some places often does not lead lead to a reduction of crime. He cited Chicago's weapon ban, yeah. like when they put that into force in Chicago, that the actually gun crimes and stuff and violent crime went way up. It skyrocketed for at least a while. Mm-hmm. And um, was an, I can't remember the other city. There was like two. I think D.C. was the other one.
2: Yeah, D.C. has got really high gun violence rates, especially mm-hmm, right. in Ward seven and eight.
1: And so when when you have a situation, where, and this was like, again, at one time the weapons were legal, you can go get them. It's still still hard to do, but mm-hmm. you can go get them. And it was uh, in response because somebody actually went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court now, actually would that, downturned that law.
2: Would that be the Heller Amendment uh, that you're talking about? Because the, I could
1: not say it because I can't remember if okay, that was or well, not. <laughs> well, that, that, <laughs> That's just, just,
2: just to it. speak to that, yeah, um, right. the Heller Amendment was put in place because someone in, in D.C., she wanted to protect herself from home invaders, and so she went to the Supreme, uh, I, I believe it was the Supreme Court, um, and uh, they ruled that it was legal to have a handgun in the home. Um, yeah. So it's sort of, I realize that's not what you were talking about now, yeah. but um, you're, yeah, you're right. Um, we- banning, banning weapons outright does follow by an increase in gun crimes sometimes. Um, and it's very dependent, s- very yeah. dependent on those other factors that we were the talking socioeconomic about. Yeah. factors.
0: I mean, I, Australia and the UK both passed gun control laws and saw a sharp decline in gun deaths and in mass shootings. And that's just but, incontrovertible
1: evidence. But is there also like a increase in other violent crimes and stuff, too? Because that's a, that one is a of the ideas question. people have tried to argue is that if you ban guns, well, your criminal elements are not going to follow that. Anyway, for example, they're going to if they want a gun they can go
2: get yeah. one. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess the idea so somewhere is else and is then it in or whatever. volume and um mm-hmm. and impact. So, um you know, maybe someone who's inclined to criminality will commit a crime no matter what whether or not there's a gun law in place. But the ability for them to cause destruction on a wide scale has been eliminated. Um, so maybe they can go and, you know, create a pipe bomb or something like that. And that like definitely does, is not affected by, you know, anything that you could do by banning guns, but their ability to simply go into a store and purchase a weapon and then shoot somebody on the street has been eliminated. And I'm going to, um,
1: or at least reduced. Yeah, at Reduce. least reduced. Yeah.
2: <laughs> they, they can definitely get it illegally. Um. But I think the the idea there is not necessarily that you get rid of crime because who who knows how that would work. If we if we we knew
1: how to do that, we would probably yeah we wouldn't have this problem.
0: Well, I think the important (laughs) distinction to make is you know you if you're limiting if you're doing gun control measures, you are still addressing what is a symptom. Yeah, and there's still going to be either a socioeconomic or a cultural issue at play that is creating impetus for the violence right and i i think that that's whether it works in the uk or australia or the u.s i think it's more dependent on the domestic environment than it is on the amount of weapons actually
1: available i think also if you look at history this is again with alcohol but with prohibition Mm -hmm. um Mm. clearly um the law a constitutional amendment went into force and yeah i guess everyone stopped drinking right away it was totally successful yes nobody nobody did anything whatsoever. illegal whatsoever <laughs> but what it did do is it moved it underground and there was people who definitely followed the law there was many 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 people who hated it and got and eventually they had to overturn it the war on drugs as unfortunately is another problem yeah you know um, recently in california marijuana has been legalized but man i have friends who've been smoking i have friends as grandparents who've been smoking yeah. marijuana i mean i guess the and, difference and there doing is that, other hard drugs yeah, too right. so it's not like you're just because you have a law against it means that you're gonna get rid of it but, I, but I then you can, it. you can tax <laughs> it but i think i think a lot of it really has to do with um how do you approach it as a cultural phenomenon yeah. to kind of convince people socially hey if you're going to do this you have that choice but there are some major you have to take responsibility there's some things you need to learn and understand in a in a very important way and provide like kind of what i was suggesting like education yeah so people i've been kind of told point blank this is what this is this is what this means if you're going to choose to do this Mm -hmm. and yeah again i don't think that people under 18 should go around and buy a bunch of guns that clearly that's not the case but um just like they can't drink alcohol and they can't you know do these other things. but still, you know, if you have an avenue for people to learn more about if they're going to choose to do this, this is what you have to you have to make a lifestyle change effectively potentially to uh, make sure you're being responsible.
2: I <laughs> like that you said sorry, um, yeah go no 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 I, I, was, I was just the lifestyle change thing uh, made me think of the the most recent campaign that Brady launched, which is called End Family Fire. Um, and it's exactly what you're talking about. It's absolutely that educational component, making sure that people are aware of the responsibilities involved in gun ownership and encouraging you know, safe storage so that children can't just wander into like your basement box of guns. Mm, that's uh, a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and you know, so there's policy measures that can be taken in tandem with um, you know, cultural transformation. For example, like saying, if you own a gun, Make sure you have this like locking mechanism for it. Here's how you do it. Maybe even have a component that's like, we'll offer you like a free one or like go and, and do this so that you address people who are yeah. poor and can't get these Incentives. things. Incentives. Here are
1: some here are some approved versions that we have that we've tested yeah. and they seem to be very effective. Or
2: if you're worried about security, get a dog. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, I and, 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 and security health. also is really important, especially like you people mentioned, people breaking out somebody's yeah. home. Um, and there's there's a good argument that, you know, I mean, sure, call the police, but the police out, take at least a couple minutes. If they're like right around the corner, they take a couple minutes to get there, right? Um, they can come very fast, but five ten minutes might be, might be too late. And there, uh, I don't have it on me. I can send it to um, to yeah. you. But there's actually a recording of a of a woman, uh, I don't remember where it was, but it was actually, she called um, her husband and said, hey, there's somebody in the house. And, the, and it was somebody who came to the house. She said she wasn't interested in whatever they had to sell her. They, that guy left and then they came back. And she's Ooh. like, okay, this is really weird. So she took her kids upstairs up to the attic, okay, of the house. And she went and got the guns and went up there. Her husband said, go get the guns, go up the attic, don't do anything until he comes in. And the husband dialed uh, dispatch for the local law enforcement. And, um, and it's like recorded this whole, this whole situation where this person goes through the house and comes all the way up to the attic of like, you know, and this is, I think they live in the countryside and, and the husband's like, look, if that guy opens up that attic, you shoot him. you know, like, you know, like you've gone as far as you can go. Yeah. There's nothing else you can do. And so, yeah, she eventually shot him. The guy fled because he got shot. And then he eventually crashed a car after like passing out from lack of blood and the police found and arrested him, took him to the hospital and all that kind of stuff. And um, so that's an, there is there are situations that people have a legitimate right to self-defense. Yeah. And again, if, it, if it's like a big guy against a small girl in a knife fight, the guy is, has an advantage physically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, if you have a weapon, it's like um, John Stossel says, yeah. like the great equalizer, as it were. Just but the... I, But again, it has to be responsible. It has to be something like what that lady did, where she tried her very best to get out, or you, you see what I'm saying, to try yeah. to get away, and then that guy was being persistent anyway.
2: The corollary of that is making sure that the person who who everyone who has access to those guns knows how to use them like you were saying because the corollary of that is there are a lot of instances where how's anyone who gets a gun for self-defense but doesn't actually train how to use use it properly (laughs) you know they're not gonna react any better than some random person you know how are you gonna um, fumble for your gun in the dark if there's an intruder get it aim it properly and fire it all in the span of time enough to make a difference.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately the the that lady's husband like on there is like, hey, you're gonna shoot him just like I showed you kind of thing. You know? yeah, so he had yeah. like obviously taken her in it compo-
2: kind of The education component component is vital. Yeah.
1: So I wanna sort of segue this sort of security conversation
0: to you, Trusha. Um, we recently in the last I think month or so heard from our Secretary of Defense, John Bolton, about uh, is he Secretary of no, Defense? he's a National Security Advisor. National Security Advisor the, um, to the President.
1: The, um, you know, uh, John Matt or uh, James, Matt, 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 that's uh, James right. Mattis okay. is the Secretary of Defense. Other important
0: distinctions. <laughs> but the, the,
1: the, the, the what I call the patron saint of Marines. Uh, right after Mattis? Ches- Mattis, right okay. after Chesty Polar
0: and a few Extraordinarily uh, <laughs> historical Marines, yeah. Well, John Bolton uh, has suggested that we were going to withdraw from the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces mm-hmm. Treaty with Russia. Um, it seems a little counterintuitive, especially given the administration and especially Bolton's stance, uh, relatively aggressive stance, toward security. And I want to know why does this make sense and if it makes
3: sense? I don't think it's Good surprising. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I don't think it's surprising. I do think it sets bad precedent for New START. Um, but For a while now, I think this administration has been inward looking um, and moving away from multilateral fora. So I, again, I'm not surprised, but I do feel like it signals this America first um, theme that the Trump administration has going. Um, And I think that spills over into, other agreements. And I I also wanted to make sure that we all knew that there are international agreements in place for conventional arms control. So there are attempts by many countries including the united states um there's the arms trade treaty there's the convention on certain conventional mm-hmm. weapons you have the u.n program of actions on small arms and light weapons there's the mine ban treaty convention on cluster munitions there's a lot of stuff yeah. out there That's so it's not know. yeah it's <laughs> not like the united states is entirely like hands off um it, it hasn't signed well, the convention. Yeah, on nuclear convention.
0: arms though are a whole different beast because that's not something that is used on a regular basis. And it's something that no nation really prioritizes the use of yet. You know, right. it hasn't happened since World War II, obviously, in combat. But the what I'm curious about is the logic behind trying, if I remember correctly, and please let me know, mm-hmm. um, the US is actually looking to increase its stockpile of nuclear weapons.
1: Is that, is that
0: I, true?
3: I don't know. I because that that this is, this is <laughs> the media
0: right
1: now. Uh, I don't know what... Yeah, Trump ma- made an announcement to that effect, basically, yes. that he's, um, well...
0: Trump makes a lot is of announcements. So, Does not one that's do the trick?
2: True. Like, um, is it one enough? <laughs>
0: to, he, uh, yeah, like, uh, the, the use of smaller, more tactical nuclear weapons would, is what he sounded like he was prioritizing. Oh, you just but,
2: need Sarbamba, and then you're good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there.
0: how <laughs> is anybody getting safer if we're getting rid of a treaty like this i heard russia has not been particularly faithful to adhering adherence
3: right and in the past russia has a lot of times expressed its displeasure um with that treaty so it's not again like i said i don't feel like this is surprising the timing Mm -hmm. just seems extremely odd and inconvenient um i i don't i don't see what 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 the united states States gets from leaving i i don't see the sense in what the United States gets from leaving a lot of agreements. It was a part of, Mm -hmm. like, whether that's Paris or the Human Rights Council, or
2: it follows a pattern of leaving multilateral agreements. Yeah. I
1: I think that the, um, I mean, from what the US seems to say is that they say, okay, well, we're in a treaty with Russia. And interestingly, by the way, it's also Ukraine and one of the other uh, former Soviet states also is part of the treaty, right? After the Soviet Union kind of collapsed. And they're saying, well, the, if, the if Russia is cheating, which the U.S. has made that accusation and, um, you yeah, know, that claim, and they say that they're developing some sort of intermediate range uh, uh, cruise missile, that, um, well, then why are we going to be bound to that? But interestingly, I wonder if it also serves a purpose if, if you plow the treaty that opens up the opportunity for you to develop those weapons because you, then you're no longer a part of that treaty. And thus that could lead to an arms race. And if that's something that, uh, I don't know if Mr. Bolton is uh, interested in that kind of thing, or if, uh, Mr. Trump is, but if that is something that they're interested in, then, you know, they would have to pull out of that treaty. I hope that that's not the case. Cause I think that the, the more treaties you say of not, let's not make these kinds of weapons and missiles and delivery systems and et cetera, the better. But then again, um, especially with the 2015 review conference having no consensus document, right, um, that it seems like there's a very, there's like a lot of stopping in terms of disarmament of nuclear weapons and um, any sort of progress toward uh, disarming. So to close things up, I,
0: I want to know what you guys think. Like in a country like the U.S. where we've got this this particular attitude toward global arms trade and nuclear Arsenals, do you think that there like the cognitive dissonance between that attitude and an attitude of controlling the distribution of arms within the country? Um, is there any way that a coherent kind of policy can come out of that? Whether it's for, you know, small arms control or you know, I, I just I can't see anybody taking us seriously making legislation or policy in either direction because there's so much contradiction. So, where do you what do you guys feel about that we've got the you know, last few minutes here?
2: I'm glad Trisha brought up the uh international agreements cuz I wasn't aware of that, but then again that's not my area, but um it seems like if there's an international set of rules, then that makes it I think, if not easier domestically than at least saying, okay, well, everyone agrees to these things. Why aren't we doing that? Um, Or why, why are we making exceptions for ourselves in these other ways? And um, again, it goes kind of back to context, you know, each, each country is different. Each one is going to have a different relationship with um, war and peace and, and their conceptions of that. And any policy that is made domestically at least has to be um also in line with uh, with the culture and we can do our best to mandate that globally and follow the international rules that are already in place but i think it's just going to come down to time and change mm-hmm. and new people coming in same same globally you yeah. know the the international order is going to shift when all of the young people the new generation yeah when, shift, and yeah. and it's it's all going to shift and it always shifts um but you know, it's just can we do this in time to avoid, you know, conflict? Yeah. Violent <laughs> conflict, yeah. Barring, of course, all the violent <laughs> conflicts that are already yeah. ongoing. barring the barring world. future yeah. massive conflict on yeah. a scale that we may not yeah. want to yeah. see. Yeah.
1: I think that there's. Um, a couple, couple things. One, not every single one of those treaties like outlaws that action. Like that mm-hmm. small arms control treaty doesn't say you cannot sell small small arms in oh, no. different but places. It just tries like, to regulates. regulate. It's it's yeah. just trying to regulate. Whereas the cluster munitions, I think mm-hmm. bans cluster munition use as it were, right? Mm-hmm. And so some of those treaties do ban. Some of them are trying to regulate. Okay. And I think that um, in terms of uh, both international and domestic policy and how that is developed and how we put priorities down it depends on three things one the corporate and financial interests Mm. that can sway politicians to agree or not agree to things Um, that's a a pretty big player the political uh, will of the administration not just the president but also congress specifically that will or will not pass certain laws and um, uh, for example if you get um, a Democratic, you know, controlled Congress and Senate and a president is going to be different than what a Republican president, Senate and House mm-hmm. will do. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to play a big role because they have different values and also the role of people on just people in, a, in the U.S. and around the world, putting pressure on those representatives to um, say like, hey, look, this is BS. We need to have these certain changes and we need to you know not change to one extreme not change to the other extreme but find somewhere where people could be reasonably satisfied and uh, i think a lot of, again the education again trying to have discussions not just tr- trying to win the discussion mm-hmm. if you understand my meaning that seems to be going all around yeah. a lot now i will say anything as long as i win the discussion but actually honestly having a discussion Yeah,
2: civil public discourse so yeah in a,
1: in a real sense which um, those are the things I think that are, um, and people protesting for and against their, their things and trying to find something in the actual middle and making, trying to force our congressional and Senate politicians to do the same. This podcast is practice for that.
2: Now we yeah, we can we can be conscientious consumers too. I'm glad you mentioned the corporate financial interests <laughs> because, you know, we, we choose what we buy despite the market, so.
3: Right, and also recognizing that while it's, really truly amazing that we can have this conversation that that's a domestic thing and that conversation isn't necessarily happening but we in the United States and the actors that it's affecting outside the United States and so just being conscientious again about how gun owners in the United States might feel about US policy sending arms overseas
1: yeah. that's education and culture I think
0: yeah. yeah. All right, guys. we hammered it home. I think so. <laughs> Educa- education and culture, conversation. Yeah, it's a good we've place to start.
2: Far over your time, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: Thank you all for coming. This has been a really fascinating discussion. Jimmy, Kat, thank Trusha. Thank you. Been a pleasure. And hey, thank you for the opportunity.
2: Yeah. yeah. Did you want me to record that or oh. production joke?
0: Good one, Mark. Uh, thanks a lot. But seriously, thank you, Mark, for setting up these recordings. Mark Bassey of the DLC or Digital Learning and Inquiry Center or whatever you guys call yourselves these days, you are amazing, and you do amazing work and make this sort of thing possible for students. Uh, thank you also to Caitlin Shepard, a.k.a. Ding, for continually providing the soundtrack for Miss Radio. It is her song, Indian Summer, that is providing the outro you're listening to now as well as the intro that began the episode um, and of course thank you to jimmy kat and Trusha for sitting down for this conversation i hope it's the first of many that just gets you thinking gets you thinking about what these different policy issues have in common and obviously what the differences are but um, among many other things miss is a policy school. I like to think about these problems from new perspectives and share them with you. If there are other policy issues that you'd like to see from a new perspective, please let me know. Uh, You can email me at gbsanders at miss.edu or just talk to me if you see me. A big thanks to everyone who's gotten involved with Miss Radio this semester. We're not done. We've got a few more episodes to go before the semester ends. And we'll be doing our best to get those out as finals approach and projects impose themselves upon our daily lives. But I really appreciate all of you who have listened, who have suggested ideas, who have come to me with something you want to make a reality, a big question that you have that you want to explore. That's what this podcast is about. All right. If you liked what you just heard, find us on iTunes, on Spotify, anywhere. Leave us a review. I guess you can do stars and actually write stuff on iTunes. That's new for us. Um, Look us up, Miss Radio, on all these different podcasting platforms. All right, that's enough for today. Thank you for listening.